0: Hi, ASS203 students. Welcome back from the inter-trimester break. I hope it was restful uh, that you managed to uh, do what you needed to in this time, whether it was to um, spend some virtual time with family and friends or to catch up with uh, work, both from this unit and from other units, um, and that you are now ready and refreshed and able to start uh, the second half of this trimester. So um, let's just remind ourselves where we are. We left off in the middle of module three. So recall that in week five, we had looked at the classifying terms of nature and culture as one way and a dominant way in fact of ordering the relationships between the natural environment and human being. Now um, these uh, terms nature and culture are often taken to be mutually exclusive and that this relationship um, has been framed as a dichotomy, uh, namely the natural environment is part of the category of nature and the human environments of arts and technology, language and so forth are part of the category of culture. Um, In this module, uh, in, in this lecture, what we want to do is look at different literature that has critiqued this dichotomy in various ways, um, but in particular what we want to look at is the work of a French anthropologist named Philippe Descola, because what he does with this um, pair of classifying terms is actually, I think, a little bit more interesting, um, a little bit more sustained uh, than a lot of the other literature that came uh, before. So let's take this opportunity in module three to kind of uh, solidify our understanding of um, nature and culture. And what I suggest this will help us do is um, a couple of things. One is it uh, frames our question about what is a human, what is a person in uh, different ways. Right. Because I think if we were just to take nature and culture as a dichotomy, as mutually exclusive, then we would um, remain unquestioning about human beings' relationships with those other entities that we um, interact with in what we might uh, call the natural environment. So uh, on the one hand, you know, the um, entities that more easily complicate that relationship like dogs and even horses, um, you know, entities that we have sort of frequent and uh, special, shall we say meaningful relationships with as pets as um, as creatures and beings that we interact with on a regular basis, uh, but also in other ways. Those other entities that are not part of our everyday, but that non- nonetheless are uh, important and uh, that bear in um, a really practical way. And this we will come back to or come to when we go to Module 5 and look at the implications uh, for us, right, of of rethinking what it means to be a human being and how we interact with uh, what we classify as non-humans. So this is all, I think, part of a larger discussion. And if we're able to sort of nut down and uh, really appreciate what's at stake here, in our rethinking of these classifying categories or terms of nature and culture, then I think we're in a very much stronger position to um, uh, Uh, call into question some of the assumptions that we might have, be critical of some of the ways that have been suggested as solutions say, of something like climate change, something big like climate change, uh, but also of ways to um, be more imaginative in our thinking through some of the issues, uh, some of the global pressing issues of today. All right. So this is <laughs> All quite large. Um, I, uh, you know, urge you to consider it um, not only for this unit but beyond. So again, this unit is not um, meant to give us any kind of answer, solution, but it's meant to give us ways to begin thinking and to begin thinking critically and to begin thinking long term. Uh, so I really, you know, hope uh, that even past the last assessment, even past the release of results, that you will continue to um, engage with some of the ideas, uh, some of the conversations, some of the discussions that we've had from this unit, um, because I, I think it's really uh, 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 sort of grounding um, in many ways for, for, for the future. All right, so let's begin. Uh, There are three kind of bodies of literature that I want to begin looking at, and, and I'll just look at them in a way, in passing, um, to acknowledge that there has been effort uh, to question this dichotomy between nature and culture, and to sort of um, expand, I suppose, uh, beyond the kinds of uh, Cartesian, and by that I mean, uh, you know, legacy of Descartes. Um, And he's thinking on animals, for example, uh, to expand beyond a kind of Cartesian dichotomy uh, presented by substance dualism um, that has then gone um, and penetrated into this sort of um, uh, classifying terms of nature and culture. So the first set of literature uh, sort of very loosely uh, termed nature culture with no capital letters, and with no space in between. Uh, But what this general literature tries to do is synthesize the duality of nature and culture by recognizing the inseparability in ecological relationships. Um, And this inseparability is that these relationships are both biophysically and socially formed. And in many ways, I mean, I think we can Appreciate instinctively what this is. I mean, I think if we even take our um, sort of uh, household relationships relationships with pets, or extend beyond that, you know, into relationships with, um, if any of you work on a farm uh, with, you know, uh, cattle or sheep, uh, if any of you work, for example, the Flemington racecourse with horses, I mean, you will appreciate that this sort of duality of nature and culture, as proposed by someone like Descartes, does not hold, and that, in fact, there's a kind of inseparability um, that's both biophysically and socially formed. And what do we mean by this? Let's just take an example uh, of a bit of work uh, that's looked at the relationship between Bali people, these are people in Bali, uh, and long-tailed macaques, uh, which are a kind of monkey, and that this relationship has evolved over thousands of years and developed a kind of mutual ecology that is deeply intertwined. And by deeply intertwined we mean that the dietary, economic, parasitological, religious behavioral, political, and even geographical elements are all implicated in the relationships, you know. So, for example, in terms of tourism, in terms of of uh, food, in terms of even the kinds of parasites. Um, and by this, there's clearly a more symbiotic relationship here than between uh, the pangolin and humans, uh, you know, pangolins and bats. Um, so if anyone doesn't know, that's the kind of presumed scientific jump uh, of the COVID-19 virus, right? That it's a virus endemic in bats and that from bats it probably jumped to the pangolin and the pangolin as a kind of traditional Chinese medicinal kind of product uh, was then ingested and then jumped to humans. So that's the kind of presumed Scientific leap um, and journey of the COVID-19 virus, but of course that's not a detri- that's a detrimental um, jump. It's not a symbiotic one. But in terms of Balinese people and macaques, there have been um, suggestions that there are parasitological relationships um, that have evolved over thousands of years, but that these are symbiotic. Um, and also in macaques, um, intersection of uh, uh, um, elements in religious and political political behavior as well. So all of these sorts of like multiple levels of relationships suggest that there are uh, very important uh, uh, levels here of relationships that really call into question a duality between nature and culture. Um, And what this set of literature attempts to do is recognize that these classifying terms exist but instead of focusing on the category, rather focuses on the relationships, on the holistic investigations of co-constructed multi-species relationships. All right, so that's just one example. Let's move uh, quite fairly quickly on to another set of literature that also questions the duality of nature and culture, but in a slightly different way. And in this sort of literature, um, mainly proposed by an anthropologist named Kay Milton, who was um, at uh, Belfast and then uh, in Scotland for a while, um, posits a cultural approach to the study of environmental, quote-unquote, natural issues, and argues instead that cultural analysis towards the environment in fact, offers a very different perspective from the natural sciences and policy studies. Okay, all right there. I think as a kind of uh, group um, either majoring in anthropology or certainly opens anthropology as um, a discipline and a way that expands our thinking, that's all well and good. Um, But here what Kane Milton is suggesting is that culture, rather than being a thing, right, like a category or, or a term from which you can um, sort of put uh, human technologies and art and language is an analytical concept. So here what Milton suggests is that culture is a way of understanding something. And it follows therefore that there are different ways of understanding something. And so that there are different analytical concepts and processes about nature than just a modern one. What she would suggest then is that culture um, is uh, just, is, uh, that there are many different cultures in terms of uh, an uh, analysis and a way of thinking about nature. What's really important in her work is that action and knowledge as two different things are not separated, but actually form a single process known as culture. So when we talk about an analytical concept, that is not a kind of abstract form of knowledge. It's not an abstract concept, but rather it's already informed by action and experience. And so culture as analysis uh, varies in different ways. But all of this, in a way, still assumes that there is a single unitary and stable concept known as nature or the environment of which there are different points of view or different ways of thinking, right? So this second set of literature, again, mainly uh, proposed by K. Milton, uh, would suggest that there is still um, a kind of nature, one nature, solitary, stable the environment, of which there are many different cultures, there therefore many different actions and knowledges towards that one thing. And you can kind of see a resonance here, I think, with um, earlier references made in this unit to something like ethnobiology or ethnoecology, right? So if we recall, in week three, I introduced um, Berlin and Bulma as kind of um, thinkers who are talking for a different kind of ethno-classificatory approach. Again, this is not dissimilar from that. This assumes that there is a stable nature out there of which then you have many different cultures or ethno-classifications that might understand that one thing differently. Um, And I'm just gonna flag here as a bit of an aside that in this particular set of literature, we see most clearly a kind of evidence of cultural relativism. And by this, I mean, and I refer also to the Descola reading, uh, which is the required reading for this week, where he talks about um, on page one hundred and forty six, seven, eight, in those three pages or so, he talks about this kind of understanding of a kind of nature that is out there from which we understand um, it differently according to different cultural perspectives, right? And this whole understanding forms or informs this idea of a cultural relativism basically that our culture is not the only one but that there are other cultures other forms other ways of engaging with nature and that those are equally valid right this is in fact an extremely popular also valid thinking within a certain part of anthropology, but I suppose what I want to flag now is that that itself comes under critique when we look at the work of Philippe Descalade. That itself, Descolares suggests, is not taking seriously enough the perspective of other groups of people because overarching uh, cultural relativism is our own uh, sort of overarching view that we can say, well, this one culture is better than or is different from the other. Does that make sense? It, it assumes already an, a distance, overarching view that might then uh, fall back into a kind of assumption that that is better than other ways of thinking. And what we really want to try to grapple with in this um, module, but also in this unit as a whole, and this is an ongoing tension. Right. It's how do we take seriously the perspectives of other groups of people when those perspectives seriously challenge and seriously almost undermine our own. One of those points of tension is around the idea of rationality. Right. Rationality and irrationality, on the other hand. Twins as birds. How do we take seriously that perspective of the Nua that says twins are not persons, they are birds, and at the same time reconcile that to our own rationality or to our own uh, categories and forms of logic? That is the tension. It's an ongoing one. And what uh, someone like Descala, is proposing and I will go into this at the end of today's lecture is that there is a way right or at least one way that he proposes there might be other ways and certainly uh, from this week you should already be have already been looking at the set text starting next week in week 7 we will be looking at the set text which is from the enemy's point of view and what Viveros de Castro the author of that book suggests is another way to think through um, this tension. Okay, so now let's go on to a third set of literature. Uh, again, we're looking at literature that's critiquing the duality between nature and culture. And what this third set of literature uh, proposes, and by this, I um, want to flag that Peter Dwyer is um, sort of one author that I um, have looked to um, to sort of elaborate on this third set of literature. And what that is, is the kind of move to construct nature. So that's very interesting. Um, it differs from Kay Middleton's um, approach and differs from the previous slide. So we're not taking here nature as a given Or given and stable concept, but rather we're looking at how um, analytically and in uh, empirically nature has been constructed. How well Dwyer notes that scientists, especially ecologists, zoologists, botanists, have been trained to treat nature as separate from culture, right? As this um, uh, stable, unitary thing, and in fact to give ontological priority to the former so that we know ecologists and zoologists and botanists, they study things that are in nature. And in biology, for example, this is analogous to the separation between the environment and organism, where the environment is given and the organism is an emerging product. And what we have here is Dwyer taking up this idea of a wilderness as the last bastion or the last refuge of this idea uh, called nature. In, in fact, wilderness is the construction of nature that he refers to. And by this, I just uh, again want to refer us to you know, our David Attenborough uh, documentary films on nature and how this idea of a wilderness in fact, is something constructed because David Ashenborough is never looking at people's gardens, which could still be nature, right? He's looking at the idea of an untouched nature, of a wilderness in that regard. And so um, what Dwyer picks up is that this dualism of nature and culture Actually contains and conceals a paradox, namely that the terms are opposed as discrete categories and that just by even having the terms, we are creating uh, an opposition, yet appear as moments on a continuum that are either developmental or evolutionary. So this is um, one third and uh, in this um, unit, Uh, sort of last set of literature that we look at just um, basically and simply to make ourselves aware that there have been up until now very different ways of dealing with um, the problem of a dualism between nature and culture. That there have been thinkers in anthropology and also beyond that have tried to overcome this dualism in different ways one through um, assuming nature culture right as the kind of um, focus on relationships and the inseparability in ecological relationships between biophysical and social elements the second by looking at many cultures um, and many cultural uh, analysis and interpretations, perspectives on nature and third, on, just by looking even at the construction of nature itself, on the construction of nature in the idea of a wilderness that is then sort of taken as um, a discrete category but at the same time is also uh, subject to a continuing developmental or evolutionary set of relationships with people. All of these are critiques um, that have also been, uh, in some way and in some form, taken up by uh, the focus of our lecture today, which is uh, the anthropologist Philippe Descola. So, Descola begins by agreeing with the general assumption that it is not tenable to impose this dualism on other groups of people. Right? And why is it not tenable? Because for him, it assumes an equivalence between what non-modern people strive to objectify and what we have already objectified as nature. So that's one point. And the reason, the second reason why it's not tenable is the question of why our dualist cosmology cosmology, should be seen as the template by which others are apprehended and analysed. So there are two points here. One is saying, yes, actually, non-modern people objectify as well. As we know, they have their categories. They have their classifications. But let's not assume that what they objectify and what they have as categories and classifications are equivalent to what we have already objectified. That is one point. And then the other is having assumed or having sort of questioned that, why should our cosmology or dualism be seen as the template by which others are apprehended and analysed? So let's just go and look into this a bit more. The first thing we should... um, sort of keep in mind, and let's keep this in mind in terms of the opening story in the required reading for this week. And the opening story that Descala gives us is from the uh, anecdotes or the notebooks of a missionary named Father Emil Kemlin, who lived among the Rui of the highlands of central Vietnam in the first decade of the 20th century, right? So that is the opening story. And this story refers to a woman named O. Oh. oh was pounding rice on the veranda of her house when a tiger nearby choked by a bone. In one of the huge leaps that he made to get rid of the bone, the tiger reached the veranda. In this story, Father Kemlin says, struck by fear, O dropped her pestle, which fell on the tiger's head. The tiger was so taken aback that he spat out the bone. And he went away happily. So basically, O saved the tiger from choking on this bone, right? And during the night, the woman, O, saw the tiger in a dream. The tiger said, we will enter into a friendship from father to daughter, he said. And she said, I do not dare. Who would be bold enough to pretend to such a bargain? On the contrary, it is I who is suffering, afraid of suffering a rebuttal, said the tiger. So the next morning, when O was in the forest, she met the tiger again, but in the flesh. And he was carrying a huge ball. As soon as the tiger saw O, he unloaded his prey, cut it into two pieces, threw one to the woman, and went away with the other half. This was not the only time when O oh was treated to such remnants, for from this day on, she only had to go to the forest to find pieces of beer, beer or roe that her adoptive father, the tiger, had left for her. All right, so that's the end of the story. Now, what's going on here? Clearly, in this regard, we can see that the Rayungao are doing something. They are objectifying the tiger but not as an animal, a wild animal, but objectifying the, the tiger as an adoptive father, right? So here what we're doing is we're pointing ourselves to a very, very basic sort of human act or human activity. And this is the activity of anthropocentrism. So to begin, let's just take this One step at a time. What is anthropocentrism? Anthropocentrism is the idea that humans are the most central or significant of all entities in the world. All right. So this is just a kind of a general dictionary um, uh, definition. And the kind of exemplar of anthropocentrism is the kind of the classical Greek figure of Narcissus. Because Narcissus didn't think that all humans are the most central or significant. He actually thought he himself, Narcissus himself, was kind of the most central or significant entity in the world, right? To this, you will know the story of him looking in a pool of water and becoming so enhanced or enchanted by his own image that he was not able to do anything else. And so here we have the classical Greek figure of Narcissus as the exemplar of anthropocentrism right this whole idea that we are most significant we're most central we're most amazing we're most beautiful but in many ways what we have are myths of origin that also display anthropocentric tendencies so we're not only talking about a myth of origin as we find in um, Genesis book of the Bible, but we're also looking at all the other myths around the world from the Arawete myths to uh, Tibetan myths that all display a kind of origin story of human being, right? And in that display, what we're saying is that we are somehow central in not only the world, but also in the cosmos, in the universe. The focus is always on human beings. Now, there's some sort of thought around anthropocentrism. Generally, it's taken as a negative thing. As when we read the Ingle reading from week five, he says, to quote, to defeat anthropocentrism, we must stop interpreting statements of the disabilities of other species as assertions of their inferiority, close quote. So again, rem- remember that Ingold is writing this in relation to animals, right? So if we were to take a sort of anthropocentric um, uh, sort of view, then what we're doing is we're saying, well, the animal can't speak the way we can. The animal can't build cities the way we can, and therefore, these are all statements of their inferiority, right, their lack of ability uh, in terms of what we can do. Now, that is one uh, way to think about anthropocentrism, of course, um, but that's not the only thing that's going on here when we have um, sort of an idea of something, right, that humans beings are the central and most significant of all entities in the world. There is another kind of move, and that is anthropomorphism. And that is when we attribute human traits and intentions to non-human entities, either animate or inanimate. And what's being suggested is that, okay, in the example that Descala has given us of the writings of this missionary, in central Vietnam, what we are given is a kind of central Vietnamese perspective on anthropomorphism. That this woman in the highlands and her agreement with a tiger who becomes her adopted father put aside the rationality or not of this particular example. What happens in the rest of the story is that traits of fatherhood are attributed to the, to the tiger, right? So care, feeding, and protection. All of this suggests that however we want to uh, interpret this particular story, either as rational or irrational, what is also going on is a certain level of anthropomorphism. And that is when we attribute or we give human traits and intentions to non-human entities. In this case, giving traits of fatherhood, such as care, feeding and protection, to the tiger. Now, we do this as well. We, as in we in a kind of modern society that is the legacy of a nature culture Dualism, right? We pr- provide the caricature of animals, for example, in popular movies. And I can only think of, you know, the proliferation, Ice Age, uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox. All of these um, animated, sorry, even Toy Story. You know, um, all of this is a kind of uh, exercise in anthropomorphism, and that again, we accept it because we relegate those attributes. Um, to the kind of realm of fiction or to the realm of movies, but we do it nonetheless, right? So that's what's at stake here. And I just wanted to say it quite clearly that there are two um, sort of moves. One is anthropocentric and one is anthropomorphic. And what we need to do is understand certain actions not only in terms of the actions themselves, because again, look at those two examples I've just given, attributing human traits, right? Giving human traits and intentions. We are doing the same thing in movies as this woman was doing in central Vietnam. So the action is similar. The anthropomorphism is similar. But how we understand this? whether as rational or irrational, whether as real or not real, whether as metaphorical or literal, that depends on another kind of context, another frame, shall we say. And that frame can be about an anthropocentrism, but it can also be about a framing of nature and culture. So let's just be very clear here. The actions might be the same, but how we interpret those actions, how we frame those actions, that's where the differences lie. And the differences are hard to explain when they contradict our own sort of set of principles or when they contradict our own frameworks. And categories so example two of the woman in central Vietnam is problematic for anthropologists to explain explain because of its non-rationality not only with regard to the principle of non-contradiction how can be a, how can a tiger be a tiger and a father at the same time but also within the framework of a nature culture binary where human beings and animals are fundamentally separated how can a tiger be, also be a person right? We know that's not species possible. It's not like saying, how can that man be that, that other man, right? It's about saying, how can that animal be that man? So to address the problem, anthropologists have suggested a couple of things, a couple of maneuvers, shall we say. We came across one in week three. Levy-Bruhl suggested the law of particip- participation, right? Uh, in week two, runner Willislev said, well, we've used metaphor. Um, And this is how it's as if the tiger were a father. And another way is as the expression of an anthropocentric project or projection. But in what ways? And this is where it becomes really interesting because anthropocentrism, as we have already sort of discussed in um, this slide, right, it occurs everywhere, right? Every a sort of group around the world. If you've got a myth of origin, you are displaying anthropocentric tendencies. You are saying somehow that humans are central or significant, are the most significant of all the entities in the world. So what what is happening here? How can we try to unpack this a little bit more? And what Descalà suggests is actually a kind of difference in anthropocentrism. One is a modern anthropocentrism, and the other is a non-modern one. And here again, I would refer you to his um, reading. And in uh, page 147, he talks about this quite clearly. And in page 147, what he talks about is that the former, which is a modern anthropocentrism, assumes that humans and non-humans are separated, are different by kind. And that is what holds up a kind of dualism between nature and culture, irrespective of how you might want to talk about nature culture or one nature, many cultures, or the modern construction of nature. All of those other sets of literature that I introduced the lecture with would still hold that there is a kind of anthropocentrism going on here and that this separates humans and non-humans by kind. Whereas what Descala is saying with regard to the example of the woman in central Vietnam but also of many of the other literature that engages seriously with non-modern people is that they are not unable to tell, right? They are not unable to objectify, they still do all these things and they would still put humans in a kind of a central role. But the difference here is that for them, humans and non-humans are separated by differences of degree and not of kind. So they do recognize a difference clearly between a human body and a tiger body or between a tiger and a, a peccary or between a peccary and a dog. Right, all of these are differences, but they are not necessarily differences of kind, but rather of degree. And this is where we begin to also look back to, for example, week one, where I talked about the indigenous Badi man who said, I can feel it. It hurts me here. The feeling that he feels in his body when he sees um, the coastal regions being polluted is not of the same um, intensity right, um, as if you hit him directly on his body, but nor was it a difference of kind, so that you couldn't imagine feeling outside of your body. It was rather, perhaps, differences of degree, and that's what we need to keep in mind, um, and what, that's what is important to keep in mind when we are dealing with... Um, uh, people that we've in this unit and in some of the reading readings referred to as non-modern, right? Or uh, what we might, um, you know, sort of say as we want to take their perspective seriously. Well, what does that taking that seriously mean? Well, one of the things it could mean is that they that there are different kinds of differences, and it's not all just about well, if it's not me, then it's not you, or if it, if I'm not me, then I'm not that I must be you. I mean, it's not. Just either or, the multiplicity is far greater and far more interesting. So, in light of looking at this multiplicity, let us just look um, finally at the work of Philippe Descola that proposes, in his key text *Par de la Nature et Culture* um, or in English *Beyond Nature and Culture*, he proposes moving beyond the strict binary of his mentor Claude Lévi-Strauss, and what he suggests is actually something very, very interesting. And I would argue something quite sort of different from the other that were introduced um, in the start of this lecture. What he suggests is a kind of proposition. He suggests a universal proposition, first of all, because he is still a student of of, uh, Levi choice. He still needs to acknowledge that there's something about human beings that is constitutive of humanity, something that would give us all enough in common to understand that we are all human beings, right? Because clearly, we have to start there. If We have to start by saying, I recognize you as human being. Why do I recognize you as human being? There must be something uh, between us or among us that is similar, that is in common. Otherwise, you would be so different that I would not be able to try to understand, right? So there must be some element of commonality. And what he proposes as this element of commonality is that in all groups of people around the world, there is an understanding, a kind of distinction between something that is interior, and you can call that whatever you want, you can call it a soul, you can call it consciousness, you can call it thought, you can call it an internal agent, but between something that is interior and something that is exterior or physical. And, again, you can call that whatever you want. You can call it a body, you can call it a form, you can call it materiality, you can call it substance, you can call it externality, whatever. But he argues that there is this distinction universal in all groups. And by doing so, what he suggests is another kind of structuralist pattern. And by structuralist pattern, I refer here specifically to the structuralism of Levi-Strauss. I will be talking more about this structuralism in next week's lecture. But just keep in mind for now that Philippe d'Escola is very much a student of Levi-Strauss and so he's working from a certain kind of binary, but he wants to go beyond that binary. So he proposes this kind of universal, this commonality, right? Everywhere in the world, you have people, and they kind of have this distinction. You think about your Yukagir hunters, right? There was the Ayibi the, and then there was the body. Uh, there was this other, um, for Tibetan nomads, There's a, like a la, There's a kind of a soul, and then there's the body. So everywhere, in all groups, call it whatever you want, different languages, but there's a kind of interior, and there's a kind of exterior or physicality. But he doesn't just stop there, because what he then says is that based on this, and he's not making any kind of judgment about um, and following any kind of substance dualism about Descartes here, right? He's not saying that these things aren't incremental. He's not saying that they're different in kind, nothing whatsoever. He's just identifying two different terms and a distinction between them say nothing about whether they're different in kind or degree. And what he then does is he adds modifiers. And the modifiers are continuous and discontinuous. And again, think about the continuous and discontinuous because a continuous modifier would suggest that there are actually differences of degree that are allowed between the internal and the external. And a modifier of this continuity would suggest that there's a difference, an important difference in kind between the internal and the external. All right? So look at what we're doing here. We've got two things on the one hand, the interior and the exterior. And then we have two things on the other hand, which is continuous and discontinuous. On this continuous and discontinuous here, again, I would emphasize could be used as another way to think about difference in degree, which is continuous, and difference in kind, which is discontinuous. And from this, what Descalar suggests is a kind of matrix. And this matrix of two and two, he proposes in this particular schema or schematic. Don't get overly concerned about the schematic nature of it. It's just a kind of shorthand, all right? And what he's saying here with the plus and the minus is that the plus is continuous and the minus is discontinuous. And so we have two things, interior and exterior, or interiority and physicality, and then two modifiers, The continuous, which is the plus sign, and the discontinuous, which is a negative sign. And what we have here then is a matrix that comes out where we have something known as animism, and I'll just talk through this, which assumes that the interior of any two things, say, between a person and a mountain, or a person and a tiger, is continuous is different only in degree and not in kind. Yet, their physicality, their outward form, that is discontinuous. That is a difference of kind, right? And so here, in animism, what we have is an idea that the interior is continuous, therefore only a difference of degree, and the physical is discontinuous therefore a difference of kind. And the interior con- continuity could be expressed in different ways, as a wakan, and this refers to Descola's own work, as the ayibi, this refers to the Siberian yukageya, right, or even as to something like a common humanity. Whereas your physical b- body is discontinuous, that is actually quite discrete and distinct, and it's expressed through different bodily forms, such as elk, or mountain or human. But the interior, that can be the same, right? That can be continuous. Now we go back again to this schema and look below at underneath animism at naturalism. And here is interesting because it is the inverse of animism, right? Because here in naturalism, the interiority is discontinuous and the physicality is continuous a difference in degree here and a difference of kind there. Now what does that mean? That would mean, for example, that in a naturalism ontology or in the ontology of naturalism, the interior discontinu- discontinuity is manifest through markedly different conceptions of human consciousness and non-human consciousness. Voila! That means that a man's mind, and a man's language is markedly different. It's different in kind from an animal's language and an animal's mind, right? Whereas the physical, the physicality is in fact continuous and it's expressed through a biological proposition of materiality, expressed, for example, through carbon atoms and molecules. Now, if this sounds similar, or this sounds like something you know, he would say it's because this is the modern ontology, right? This is the scientific ontology. And think about it, that's absolutely right. If we can think about the environment, everything around the environment as composed of carbon molecules and atoms, as composed of minerals that we have an atomic table for, all of these things share a physical continuity. Right, so that man as Homo sapiens, as biological being, is actually continuous with the dirt that we go back into, and in with the animals that we um, share carbon atoms and molecules with, and with the trees and the earth. All of that is expressed in a physical continuity, except the interior is different in kind, because the interior is where the consciousness of human being is different and superior to that of the consciousness of a non-human, like an animal. So this is really interesting here, because what Descalà is doing is he's giving us a different way to think through some of the material that we have encountered, so that the Siberian Yukagirs in their animistic tendency, or the uh, central Vietnamese in their animistic tendency, are actually thinking about the interior and the interiority and physicality in different ways, and in different ways from the ontology of naturalism, which is the ontology of the sciences and of the modern world. Right? So this is a really, I think, interesting proposition. Now, what else is going on here? Because what we know is that these are only the framings of something. There are also relationships, relationships between humans and non-humans that might um, work within certain terms, such as protection or nurture, balance, predation, sacrifice, all of these things, he would say, is given to us from the ethnographic record, like these stories from the missionary father, right? Like the tales from um, Evans Pritchard about the newer, like everything that the um, anthropologist can write home about or write books about, all of these are ethnographic observations. It's then up to us to understand how to interpret these actions and relationships. That even though the action and relationship of protection might be the same between, for example, me and my dog or nurture, right, because I feed my pet every day, I love my pet, it it, it gives me great joy, this relationship between me and my pet is no doubt that of protection and nurture. But at the same time, how I interpret this relationship will be very different from that of the woman and the tiger, right? And that interpretation is dependent very much on this mode of identification, which he calls an ontology. It's dependent very much on this idea of whether you might subscribe to an ontology of animism or of naturalism. So we might see the same relationship, we might see the same action, but how we interpret that, how we give that meaning and understand that, that's going to be different according to the ontologies that we subscribe to. Now, an important point, and just um, to end, is really about um, the ontologies, right? Some cautions here. They're not meant to be fixed models or systems, even though they, it's been presented as a schema, it's not static, it's not waiting to be applied or proved. Rather, what Descola himself notes is that they are best understood in comparison to each other to more clearly understand the stabilizations. you know, uh, how how, they, they sort of, um, how they're given meaning. So in this way, these ontologies are best regarded as a heuristic device, something that helps us think through problems and issues, and again, that helps us think through things in comparison to each other. And in that way, they are um, inherently anthropological because anthropology has to be comparative. right? We have to um, already start with a comparison of, say, ethnographer with the group that the ethnographer lives with. And so that already is a comparison. And finally, as stabilizations and as heuristic devices, these ontologies are not mutually exclusive unless we regard easy and complacent thinking as something to be excluded, right? So I, I want us to think of these ontologies as a helpful way, a heuristic device to help us think more clearly through some of the ethnographic evidence, through some of the relationships, through some of the um, statements and comments that come across perhaps as irrational or illogical in one way, but perhaps not if we think about it in other ways. Now, of course, if I go back to this schema, you will see that there are two other ontologies that I haven't touched on. One is totemism, and the other is analogism, and they are the flip of each other. So that totemism takes a continuous interiority and physicality. And what Descala suggests is that indigenous Australians actually subscribe to an ontology of totemism. So that this interiority that the body man feels is also a physicality um, that is continuous or a different only of degree. And the other that he proposes is that of analogism, where the interiority and the physicality are different in kind. And this is really key. He suggests uh, certain uh, groups in Mexico, but also in India and China are subscribing to this ontology of analogism, where there's not even a continuity in terms of the physical aspects of beings. Okay? Now, I'm going to end there. There's a lot to take in, but I encourage you to read the week six required reading. And for everyone to jump in to the online seminars this week. So they're across the board, Burwood, Warn Ponds, and also Cloud. And I would suggest that for the next three weeks, you really make it a point to attend the online seminars. Not only because we'll be dealing with the set text next week in week seven and in week eight, but also because these seminars will be immensely helpful I assure you, when you think not only about um, your learning for this unit, but also for the assessment that's to come, which is the long essay, all right? So, in these next three weeks, I really suggest, recommend that you focus on attending the online seminars, doing the readings the best you can, and engaging with each other. Take the energy that you've had, hopefully, got from the intertrimester break. Take it into the following weeks. And um, trust me, I, I think it will be worthwhile. All right. Thank you. And I'll see most of you um, either in online seminars or in the discussion board.